Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Cryptic codes, stolen secrets, operations conducted under the cover of night for information that can mean the difference between life and death, that can change the course of history. Is there anything, dear listeners, more interesting than espionage? As we mark our 50th full episode, more on that shortly, we at Crime Capsule are thrilled to start a brand new series looking at the history of intelligence in America. It's such a polite word, intelligence, that masks that dangerous and often dirty work of learning what we're not supposed to learn, of gaining insight we're not supposed to have. And what better time and place to learn about spies in American history than at the very birth of American history during the Revolutionary War. Recent years have seen a resurgence of interest in the clandestine network of observers and informants that the Continental Army employed against the British. And we could not be more grateful to have one of the absolute experts on the topic with us today. Joining us is Bill Blyer, journalist, historian, and author of the new book, George Washington's Long Island Spy Ring, a history and tour guide, published last year by the History Press. An exceptional account of an operation whose pages, by the desires of its own agents, were supposed to go up in smoke centuries ago. Blyer's book sheds light on some of the earliest shadows that our country ever cast. As for that 50th episode and the winner of our first ever book giveaway, stay tuned at the end of today's show. For now, let's join Bill in the studio for George Washington's Long Island Spy Ring. Bill, welcome to Crime Capsule. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Good to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations on your new book, which came out uh, last year. How have you been feeling about it? Um, I've been feeling good. It's uh, it's a little controversial because I take to task um, previous historians for spreading either misinformation or treating uh, legends as fact. Um, but it, uh, Particularly here on Long Island, uh, the spy ring is, is you know, very interesting to a lot of people. So I've been doing a lot of lectures. The book has been selling well, and uh, it's, uh, it's been fun. Well, we're going to dive into that very shortly. But before we get started, uh, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? You seem to have had a, a very uh, diverse career. You've worked in journalism. You've worked in academia. You've worked in research. You've worked kind of all over. So how did, how did you get your start, and then how did this book come to be? My career initially was as a journalist, um, and even that I sort of backed into it. I was on t- track to be an economics. Uh, I was an economics major. I was on track at Hofstra University here on Long Island to uh, get a PhD, come back and teach at the at the urging of the economics faculty, and uh, was writing. And it's more for fun. I was writing music stories for the campus newspaper, which I had done in high school, and then. Uh, Robert Moses uh, and Governor Nelson Rockefeller back there in the uh, late 60s and 70s uh, were planning to build a bridge across Long Island Sound that would have come right through the area where I I now live uh, and would have destroyed the environment. So I decided to do what became my first ever news story for the Hofstra paper and uh, about the environmental impact of this bridge. And this was early 70s, right after Earth Day. And... uh, my life has always worked out very weirdly, like things I don't expect happen, happen because there's like some great force steering me in the right direction, God <laughs> or whatever, I, I, I don't know. But uh, I end up with choices or direction that I would never expect. In this case, the deus ex maxima was the campus paper was put out uh, in a printing place near the campus. That was also where the Oyster Bay Guardian, the local weekly, was printed, and they wrote about this bridge every week. Uh, trying to stop it, and I never even had seen the paper, but they called the, the one of the paste up women noticed the story in the Hofstra Chronicle, pointed out to the editor of the Guardian. They called me and did a story about local boy fights the bridge, which led to summer part time work, which led to me working as the editor of the paper for a year when I graduated, which led to six years in the wilds of New Jersey, which led to Newsday, 
the prim primary Long Island, the only Long Island daily paper where I always wanted to work once I decided I wanted to be a journalist. And uh, you know, I focused on history and maritime affairs, which my longtime interest since childhood. Um, and then eventually, as I decided I wanted to leave you know, full-time work and work part-time for myself, uh, I started maritime and history books, and uh, today we're talking about number five. I have to ask, did David slay Goliath? Did you stop the bridge? Yes, um, we did. Oh. And I, uh, I actually, I was still in college in 72. Uh, I had just started working for the paper and got to write the biggest story in the history of the 100-year-old newspaper when Rockefeller killed the project because of the local opposition. And... Uh, had an argument with the editor of the paper who was very conservative. I said, this needs to be a banner headline. And she said, the Guardian has never had a banner headline in 100 years. Uh, and I won the argument. And I got to interview Robert Moses later, which was kind of interesting because he was oh, like, really angry about this whole thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, Bill, as I was reading your work, I was reminded over and over again of um, the the old adage that you know, journalism is the first draft of history, and here you are with sort of a foot in in both worlds. Does that does that maxim ring true for you particularly? Yeah, well, I mean, it was it's it's, it's I still write part, uh, freelance for Newsday. For, you know, they do big history spreads primarily, or some business stories, uh, and it's a thrill to see. You know, even after forty years of you know, working in the field full time, I still love seeing my stuff and get an excitement and buzz from that. But you know, it's it's there. People forget about it pretty quickly. It might end up in a library or an archive, and people will refer to articles I've done, you know, years ago, which is nice. But it's you know, it's it's the wrapping the fish, you know, kind of story. It's you know, it's it's out there. It's gone. Uh, so when I started doing uh, these history books, and, and I see them in big box stores, I see them listed on Amazon, and you know, people come to the lectures and buy them and have them signed. Uh, you know, it's, it's a thrill because. Uh, in every case, I'm doing that fill a vacuum that I could never understand why nobody else had done them. You know, the first one was Long Island, the Civil War, which I co-wrote with a historian who had been my major source on Civil War stories on Long Island. He had 20 years of research, and he kept saying he was going to write a book, turn it into a book, and he never did. So I had already given my notice. Uh, actually, I was getting ready to give my notice after 33 years at Newsday and had lunch with a head of a local preservation group. And she said, well, if you leave, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to do books. Uh, and the first one I had in mind was the history of Sagamore Hill because I had gone there. Uh, it's near my house, and I had gone there since I was you know, probably in elementary school and kept looking for somebody to write the history of Sagamore Hill every time I was there. And I'd ask the rangers and the curators, as, as because I, I covered it for Newsday. So when I'd go over and say, when is somebody going to write the, the history of Sagamore Hill? Um, and the uh, curator kept saying she was going to do it when she retired, and then she retired and decided she didn't want to do it. So she goes, why don't you do it? So I did. Uh, but to me, that was such a natural topic. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of maritime history books, but they're all kind of fragmented. Nobody had ever written about every conceivable or you know topic about Long Island maritime history in one book, and I kept waiting for that. And uh, you know, Mystic Seaport, you know, did things that was similar, but didn't really cover everything on Long Island. So, uh, and the Culper, the Culper is, is sort of an uh, exception because there's been a lot of books about the Culper, including two full books just on the ring. Um, but nobody had nobody had done what I ended up doing, which is an analytical history where. Uh, I looked at every other thing written about it and said, is this true, is not true? Everybody else just wrote their version, some of which are wildly fanciful, uh, but nobody ever you know, said, this author said X and this author said Y. So as I got into it, I said, there's so much conflicting information, I'm going to write a book that's really an analytical history that nobody else has done. So, uh, but yeah, so I basically have gone from journalist to journalist, author to his, journalist, author, historian, but I'm really still all three, I guess. Well, let me ask you, that's that's something which is uh, very apparent. It comes up front and center in your account of this really remarkable moment in American history. Uh, your book starts off with a classic historiographic gesture, which is the literature review. But your literature review, looking at who else is out there and what's been written, what's been said, it has quite an edge to it. And you're very open about that. Um, there is a lot of separating fact from fiction, as you say, uh, with previous accounts, with contemporary accounts, with television shows uh, that have come along recently to kind of revive interest and so forth. Why is 
that's so important in the case of the Washington spy ring? Well, part of it is, you know, uh, as a journalist, you always want to get to the truth. And as a good historian, you want to get to the truth, too. And when I see people writing stuff, and, and this is not only in the spy ring, there's uh, in the Maritime History book, there's an execution Rocks Lighthouse in Long Island Sound. And somebody years ago started this rumor that it got its name because during the revolution, the British would chain prisoners to the rocks at low tide and then watch them drown. And it didn't make any sense when I first read it. And I looked into it and it turns out there's no proof to it, but it's in books about lighthouses. It's in books about Long Island history. And it makes me crazy um, to, you know, when I see an accuracy that, that people don't correct. And, you know, in a lot of cases I got to know the authors of these books and, and actually got them to correct it in subsequent editions. But, um, it's like, you know, you, to me, you're doing such an amazing disservice to the public if you spread information you can't document. Uh, with the Sagamore Hill book, uh, we found all kinds of examples of uh, misinformation, um, rumors passed, you know, legend passed on as fact. I was really lucky with that one because the curatorial staff at Sagamore Hill wanted a completely accurate book as best that could be done to be a resource for their rangers and volunteers as well as the public. So the curator who I had dealt with for years said, we're going to fact check everything in your book when you're done or, or as you're doing it. Uh, we found mistakes in National Park Service reports. We found mistakes in almost every biography of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, we found a uh, huge amount of mistakes in the only other history of the property done by the first director of the Theodore Roosevelt Association, which had acquired the house from the family and turned it into a museum. Um, so... Um, you know, luckily I have allies who feel the same way I do. And uh, the most famous quote about Sagamore Hill that Theodore Roosevelt supposedly said on the night of he died, uh, when he theoretically turned to his wife and said, I wonder if you'll ever know how much I love Sagamore Hill. Uh, that quote was in the Herman Hagedorn uh, Roosevelt's of Sagamore Hill book from 1953, and then shows up in every biography of Theodore Roosevelt ever since, including some really prestigious uh, authors. And I was shocked when the curator said, we've checked everything else, but we have to check this quote because it's supposed to be in a letter from Edith Roosevelt to their son Kermit right after T.R. died in the Library of Congress. So you can't see it online. So she sent a researcher friend in D.C. to go to the library, get the letter out and read it. And the quote's not there. And it's uh, people who'd spent 30 years writing biographies that did that. So it's all over the place. It was, in the, it was the first thing in my introduction to my Sagamore Hill book. I had to go back to the history press. Uh, and you know, and give them a correction and say uh, we need to put a, you know correct it and put a footnote about how this quote does not really exist and it shows up everywhere. So it's just it's just always been a big thing for me. And there is definitely taking that approach to the current study had to have been the only way forward. I was intrigued though, as you wrote that that there was one scholar in particular whom you bring out from time to time to say he laid the foundation. He gave us a sort of a start to understanding what happened uh, with the, the Culper spy ring. But some of his information was also questionable, and that was Pennypacker, right? Uh, he he is a um, it's interesting. You sort of give him like a B plus if you were to give him a sort of a pass, a passing grade on how how good his information is. He gets a bunch of the important stuff right, and then there's a few things that you take issue with, and yet he remains. Uh, you, you can't research this without encountering him. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, he's the fount uh, of information on the spiring that everything else comes from, for good or good or good or bad. He was an amateur historian. He wasn't you know, really trained in it. Uh, and did a pretty good job, became the official Suffolk County historian. Uh, people had wondered about the spiring, written about the spiring here and there, uh, starting you know well after the war in the early 1800s. Uh, but nobody quite understood how it worked, who was in it, all the nuts and bolts. And Penny Packer writes two books in 1930 and then 19, I think 1939. Uh, and the first one, he lays out in the entire operation of the spy ring, which he had gotten from uh, reading the surviving letters. Uh, and theoretically, they were all supposed to have been destroyed at the request of the members of the spy ring. But luckily for history, uh, George Washington, Benjamin Talmadge, his spy master, uh, saved a lot of them. Uh, the spies were, were not uh, because they were paranoid, justifiably so. But Penny Packer, um, you know, he read all these surviving letters. He looked through whatever documents he could find in the families involved. 
uh, and in the 1930 book, he lays it all out there. He's got the names of all the major players, how the spy ring operates, uh, gets into their spy craft. And it's an amazing book. Uh, the problem is it's not footnoted, and he repeats a lot of legend and hearsay as fact. Um, and unfortunately, lots of other authors, including some you know fairly well-respected ones, have repeated uh, all these legends and as fact also you know most famously that the the story of Anna Strong and her clothesline you know signaling uh, her neighbor and chief spy uh, Abraham Woodall across the harbor about where to meet the chief uh, maritime courier uh, you know to, to send stuff to Washington and Talmadge uh, and you know it, it makes me crazy that this stuff is just repeated as fact over and over again which is why when I kept seeing I said wait a minute I'm not just going to go through this and decide what I think is real or not and just say what I think is real, I'm going to actually name names and pick it all apart, uh, you know, which gets somewhat controversial. Uh, as you know, I particularly take uh, task, uh, to task Brian Kilmeade of Fox News because he writes what he says is a, uh, a history book, which is historical fiction at best. Uh, and when I pick on him, there's always somebody in the audience that will ask me, have you heard from Brian Kilmeade, who I know and have written about for Newsday? Or they will defend Brian Kilmeade and say I'm opinionated or I don't like him because he's conservative and I'm not. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. But, uh, but I have not heard from him. I, I'm sure he couldn't care less what I have to say about him because he's making millions of dollars on his books and his TV career. And I, I'm sure I don't matter much to him. But uh, he, he's, a, he's, he's a worse offender than even uh, Penny Packer in spreading misinformation. Well, it's, it's helpful to have the clarity. And I think that one of the things that often gets taken for granted uh, is how we know what we know, right? And it's so important to go through this in a meticulous, careful way each time that the question arises. And I thought your, uh, your sort of opening gambit there was immensely illustrative uh, in, of that as a methodological issue. So very, very helpful. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the context of the creation of the spy ring and uh, for whom maybe their American history class was a little longer ago than they would like to perhaps recall, can we just travel back for one moment to the Battle of Long Island, because this was such a pivotal moment in the American uh, Revolutionary War. You write that in many ways it was determinative of what followed over the next uh, six or seven years as the city and the surrounding area was occupied uh, by the British, but it was also immensely instructive for General George Washington as he reflected on uh, the casualties that were suffered in the battle and the necessity for better information to prevent those casualties because there are some tensions that arise out of the invasion and the occupation that really set the stage for the spy ring to follow. Twenty-four hours ago I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a conman. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Yeah, well, the Battle of Long Island, uh, a lot of people haven't even heard of it because it's not uh, Lexington and Concord. It's not Yorktown or Princeton uh, or Trenton. Uh, it's actually the biggest pitched battle uh, of the entire revolution with most soldiers from both sides involved. Washington is, is still relatively new to command. You know, he's, he's gone to, at the behest of Congress to, Lex uh, to Boston and taken control of the army after Lexington and Concord. 
uh, General Knox famously brings the cannon from Fort Ticonderoga, and they drive the British out to Nova Scotia. Washington and his troops know the British are not done. They're going to come back, and they surmise correctly that they're going to go and attack to capture New York, which is the uh, linchpin of the colonies, the commercial center of the colonies, uh, and would give them you know, control, basically divide the, the colonies in half if they could control New York. Washington has no idea if they're really going to come to New York, although he, his, he and his generals are unanimous that that's the logical next step. Uh, but they don't know where they're going to come, exactly how they're going to come, how many they're going to come, and what they're, more importantly, what they're going to do when they arrive. Uh, and he's very cognizant of uh, intelligence and the lack thereof going back to the French and Indian War because uh, he wanted to be a British officer and could never get a commission because he was a lowly continental uh, you know, col colonial officer. And the British Army uh, was particularly snobby about that. Uh, but he was, assigned, he, he was the, uh, the head of the colonial militia in Virginia, and General Braddock in the French and Indian War uh, decides he's going to march across the Alleghenies to attack what is now Pittsburgh. Uh, the French treated their Indian allies as equals. The British had some Indian scouts and treated them sort of inferior beings. Uh, so Braddock was marching into the wilderness in columns of redcoats, uh, confronts the French and Indians who ambush them, and the French are fighting uh, camouflaged uh, behind rocks and trees like with their Indian allies because they realize this is their territory and they should take the cue from the Indians uh, opposite of the British. Uh, Braddock is killed in the ambush, uh, a lot of British casualties. Washington escapes with bullet holes in his uniform, brings the survivors back to Tidewater, Virginia, and he realizes that he almost died and they were totally outfoxed out because they had no idea where the enemy was, how big the enemy force was, how they were going to fight. So he goes into uh, the revolution as commander-in-chief, knowing how important uh, intelligence is and what can happen when you don't have it. So he's acutely aware of, of his uh, liability in that area when the, you know, when the revolution breaks out. So uh, when the British show up and the largest uh, force they've ever sent uh, you know, out in any war from England, uh, it, when, they, when this force arrives in August of 1776 coming into New York Harbor, um, you know, Washington had no idea what was coming. Uh, but he knew they were coming or was convinced they were coming. Uh, they land on Staten Island to prepare for the attack, which is a surprise to Washington. Uh, he tries to get spies onto Staten Island to get information. He tries to get people on Staten Island to give him information, it's not working. He can't get the right people who can get back and forth. So he's totally in the dark. So after a week or two of preparation, when the British transfer the force across the lower harbor to Brooklyn, the timing and the size of the force is still a mystery to Washington, to the point where even though it appears uh, a huge number of, of, of troops have crossed to Brooklyn, he's not sure that that's not a diversionary attack. So he actually keeps half of the Continental Army in Lower Manhattan and stays with them until he's convinced that this is the real attack. Um, and then finally, uh, right before the battle breaks out, he's convinced that there's no more British on Staten Island uh, and then uh, moves the rest of the army and himself uh, over to, uh, to Brooklyn. And you write that at this point, there's about 24,000 or so troops under General William Howe, the British, and that this is this is enormous in terms not just of troop strength but of the required provisions logistics munitions and so forth as a landing force this is unheard of and so one of the great challenges as the british sort of establish their foothold is how are they going to actually outfit uh all of these fighting troops as they try to push the patriots i think we should probably stick to patriots and loyalists or you know continentals and and british but uh figure out our terms very quickly here but how they're going to push push the Patriots, push the Continentals uh, back. Just moving this sheer number of troops is itself an enormous task. Well, they, they had troop, they had transports uh, and, and uh, supply ships along with the uh, the, the Navy ships. Um, so they and, and they could they could forage on Staten Island, and when they got to Brooklyn, they could forage there. Uh, Long Island was heavily loyalist anyhow, so I mean there were people uh, willing to supply them. There were also Patriot who would still sell supplies to the British. It was cattle and sheep and other things because they wanted to make money. Uh, so that really wasn't the issue. I mean, moving the army across the bay took them you know, a whole day pretty much. But then you know, Washington had no idea what was coming next. And uh, 
unluckily for Washington, you know, Howe was not the best general. Howe also was very had a very favorable feeling, warm, fuzzy feeling about the Americans. He was hoping he could end the revolution on, on sort of friendly terms. Uh, he and his brother, who was in charge of the fleet, uh, didn't really want to crush the revolution. They wanted sort of to make everybody happy and come back to, you know, to the fold. Uh, unluckily, unluckily for Washington, the, uh, the subordinate generals had a different view and came up with a plan to do a diversionary attack on the western end of the American lines and then send the bulk of the forces in an end run uh, and sweep up behind Washington's first line on these uh, what was called the Heights of Gowanus, uh, and that's what they did. So they, uh, how when most of the army marched uh, all night, got around to the fifth pass in these hills uh, called Jamaica Pass. Uh, Washington and uh, Green and the other generals were convinced the British could never get that far, so they only had four uh, Patriot cavalry officers watching that pass, and the, all the others were heavily defended. So uh, around midnight, the uh, British quickly captured the four cavalry officers who were there and then swept down back west towards Manhattan uh, behind the primary lines. And it was only a suicidal uh, counterattack by uh, two brigades of uh, crack content lips under General Lord Sterling. He did a whole series of suicidal counterattacks that pushed the British back repeatedly and bought time for the rest of the Americans to to escape back to the, the secondary line on Brooklyn Heights that uh, prevented Washington from losing the, the entire war on that first day of that battle. It really is remarkable. I mean, Bill, there are lots of accounts of different kinds of managed retreats in military history, but I have to say that yours was for something that happened 250 years ago. I mean, it it was absolutely gripping. I mean, you really do feel that tension of, you know, these troops fighting at night. They're waiting for reinforcements. They don't know if reinforcements can come. They don't know which direction the British are coming from. I mean, it's sort of the atmospherics and the cinematics are so stirring in this moment and decisive. Washington throughout his uh, military career was extremely lucky. He was not, you know, a, a um, not trained in a military academy or something. He was basically a self-taught general. Uh, but he was extremely lucky from surviving with the bullet holes in his uniform in the Braddock campaign. The Battle of Long Island, uh, had, he, he had huge luck. He had luck in General Howe being a very conservative general. Howe called off the battle uh, at, at dusk the first day when, when the Americans were reeling back into the uh, lines on Brooklyn Heights. The subordinate generals were arguing, continue, you can push the Americans into the East River and win the war today. Uh, Howe said, well, the troops have been marching all night. They're hungry. They're tired. Uh, we'll do a siege, and we, we have plenty of time. We'll, we'll, we'll win this anyhow. Uh, so that was one thing. The wind is blowing very strongly out of the northeast, so this huge British fleet of warships cannot sail up the East River to cut off Washington's retreat to Manhattan. And then the fog rolls in that night to, to mask this amazing retreat. And just in time, this brigade of, of, uh, from Massachusetts showed up, made up of uh, fishermen from Marblehead who know how to row boats. Washington had already corralled every boat on the, along the shore of Brooklyn. But um, you can imagine if infantrymen who were not, didn't know their way around the water were trying to row these boats across a one-mile-wide river with a strong wind blowing, what could have happened? But the Marblehead men went back and forth all night. And uh, in the morning, when the British sentries, uh, the scouts from the British Army so, sort of go up into Brooklyn Heights and over Brooklyn Heights down to the river and find everybody's gone, it's because of all those things worked out in Washington's favor. It is It is almost like sort of the Battle of uh, Dunkirk in micro, 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 microcosm, <laughs> you know, which would take place in, uh, you know, 150 years later. So what happens in this moment is kind of interesting. I mean, the British absolutely established themselves on the island. And very, very quickly, uh, you begin to see the tensions of occupation. And you see these tensions play out in a lot of different ways. Now, our listeners will recall the interview that we did with History Press author Peter Zablocki about uh, the tensions between patriots and loyalists in New Jersey um, in the Revolutionary War period. And this this account, Bill, uh, mirrors uh, Peter's account in many ways because it describes at this intimate level what it's like to have, you know, occupying forces in your home, eating your pigs, uh, you know, taking your clothes, uh, sort of stealing your jewelry. Uh, some of the townspeople who are loyal to the British 
are welcoming them with open arms and receiving sort of grace and favor as a result of that. Others begin to feel that simmering kind of resentment of thousands of troops uh, camping out in front of their of their front door and eating everything in sight. So can, can you help us to sort of see that tension as it plays out on the island? Well, what happened is most of the males of military age, uh, the, the British basically after the battle uh, um, surprised Washington yet again uh, by uh, doing a uh, – across the, uh, the East River from Brooklyn, almost cut off – trapped Washington in lower Manhattan. He barely uh, – the militia on the shore just scatter when the British land. Uh, Washington uh, luckily gets his army uh, over to the west side of Manhattan and just skirts around the British before he's cut off. And there's a series of battles uh, up into, into Harlem and, and forts and Fort Lee and Fort – Washington, and then eventually driven entirely off the island of Manhattan. Meanwhile, the British are moving east on Long Island and very quickly occupy the entire island all the way out to Montauk and set up a series of forts and strong points and uh, in important harbors and important towns. So um, while this is going on, uh, all the, mo- most of the males of, uh, who are patriots of military age flee to New England, prim- primarily Connecticut, uh, and a lot of them join uh, the Continental Army units uh, in Connecticut or Rhode Island. And uh, initially, the British, you know, are trying to sort out the difference between the loyalists who are left and the patriots who, for whatever reason, didn't leave. Uh, but it quickly sort of degenerates into the British just taking advantage of everybody on Long Island, loyalist or, or patriot or not, uh, burning fences, you know, for, for firewood, stripping orchards of fruit. Uh, so that they uh, they basically treat everybody like second class citizens. Like if the uh, you read these accounts where if the British uh, a British officer is riding down the uh, down the street, you know the any, anybody the residents have to sort of kowtow to them, and uh, they're they're continually requisitioning food and uh, and other supplies from farmers and and store owners. You know, and so so what it does is it generates a lot of hostility even from the the, the loyalists. Because they're treated like like the patriots, and you know they're saying we support the crown, and, and you know what are we getting for for our support? And one of the things that that struck me in your account was the the granular level of. I mean, we know who some of these individuals were who were experiencing these these things because of what they uh, wrote about them, or but the accounts that have survived. One name that really stood out for me was Miller. I'm going to see if I can get this right. Uh, Paul Amberman, the who was who was abused and you know by the British and started off with somewhat of a loyalist tendency, but then very quickly, once uh, these sort of rapacious officers would come in, uh, began began to turn the other way and actually suffered greatly for it. Well, I mean, in the beginning, you know, and throughout the war, some of the better British officers would give, you know, a re- they would take something, requisition it, or, or buy it and give a receipt. And uh, then often they were just ignored. So a lot of people that, you know, had made... Uh, contracts with the British never got paid, and a lot of stuff was taken. After the war, you see a lot of these people uh, going to their local town governments, you know, and putting in uh, claims for payment against the British, which ultimately, a lot of them were ultimately paid after the war ended. You know, a lot of arrogance from the British. Uh, in the, the Miller you mentioned, uh, they took supplies. He tried to get paid and uh, for his trouble. I mean, he was basically chopped up by an officer's sword. Uh, you know, people were killed, they were maimed, uh, you know, run off their property. It was, it was a pretty dismal time. So you mentioned this this fog that had sort of enabled Washington to melt away into the night with his army um, on that in that pivotal moment. There's another fog that descends over the whole of Long Island, which is the fog of war, and it is the fog of uh, information and not knowing what is happening on the island. And so Washington very quickly realizes that in order for him to be able to anticipate troop movements or to uh, find any way of uh, keeping his suppliers safe, he has to somehow get eyes into this now very hostile, occupied zone. So you write that one of his first attempts comes from a man whose name is very well known in American history, which is Nathan Hale. But unfortunately, you also write that Nathan Hale 
with respect, was not a very good spy. <laughs> that uh, he was heroic. He was heroic. He was noble. He was well-intentioned. His account of, you know, I've been paid, you know, for my services to the Continental Army, but I've not actually given or sacrificed anything yet. I mean, that just really resonates, uh, you know, with t- tugs on our heartstrings. But if anyone was ever untrained or unfit for the job, I mean, my... My heart broke as I just sort of read about reading what 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 actually happened to Nathan Hale outside of the famous line that was never actually said. So, to, why what happened to Nathan? Well, as I said, Washington, you know, was aware of his lack of intelligence. So, the first time he has a chance to really think about it, do anything about it, is once he's back in Manhattan after the Battle of Long Island. Uh, he tasked Colonel Thomas Knowlton with forming a special unit called Knowlton's Rangers which would be made up of young officers, many of them college graduates, uh, to spy or, or gather and, and process intelligence. Uh, Nathan Hale is one of the young officers from the Connecticut Regiment who is uh, recruited for that regiment. And Knowlton says, we need somebody to cross uh, to Brooklyn to find out what the British are up to before, because we know they're going to attack Manhattan at some point. Uh, all of the others say no because uh, being a spy is considered ungentlemanly, and they don't want to ruin their reputation for the rest of their lives. Uh, Hale misses that first meeting because he's sick with the flu, hears about from his uh, fellow officers what the meeting was about, and when he recovers, he goes to Knowlton and volunteers, uh, saying, as you mentioned, that he's been in the Army for a year, hasn't done anything to help the cause or earn his pay, and he will become the spy. Uh, His fellow officers try to talk him out of it, and they say, you're the last person we know who can maintain a secret identity without exposing themselves. <laughs> but he uh, says, I, I, com- yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel compelled to do this, whatever the risk, and he does it uh, not well, as we, we know. Everybody knows the outcome, but the play-by-play is, is kind of interesting as well because uh, he leaves behind. He's, he's, he's actually a, you know, a middle-class, re- relatively prosperous school teacher in Connecticut before the war. He decides to portray himself as a poor Dutch schoolmaster when he goes to Long Island. So he takes the silver buckles off his shoes. He leaves his gold watch be- silver watch behind. Uh, anything that would indicate he's not a poor Dutch schoolmaster and inexplicably takes his Yale diploma with his real name on it with him for whatever reason. Uh, so when he's captured by... Uh, Roger, Robert Rogers, the most famous uh, American veteran of the French and Indian War, who's now working for the British, if there was any doubt about who he was or what he was doing, he's got you know, the proof in his pocket. Uh, he, you know, he also landed, was asking people he met what they thought about the British, where the British occupation forces were, and almost everybody he's talking to is a Tory. So when Rogers, who's tasked with finding and, and tra- tra- uh, tracking spies on Long Island, lands uh, to, to, to follow up uh, and find the spy or spies, he's basically saying, okay, have you seen anybody unusual? And everybody talks to him say, yeah, he went that away. So it, it only takes him, he lands at nine o'clock in the morning. By dinner time, he's sitting across the table from Hale and getting Hale to incriminate himself by pretending that he's also an American spy uh, and seals his fate. So uh, his, his entire spy mission is less than one day on Long Island because he's uh, well-intentioned but inept. Yeah, and, and next week when we talk about tradecraft, I will, uh, I'm going to bookmark this because I want to ask you about his shoes. His shoes were uh, interesting for other reasons as well as what was incriminating about, about them. I mean, it is, it is interesting because this one moment, actually, you write that there is comparative silence about the failure of the mission, that there's sort of one brief line recorded mm-hmm. in the wartime diaries about you know, Nathan Hale executed and so forth. Um, and his end is very tragic. Uh, but it's, it's one of the things that must be said about Washington is that he always learned from his mistakes, right? And in this particular instance, um, this served as the catalyst for him to take additional measures as he began to, to cultivate uh, his new ring to think, okay, how can I do this more carefully and what can we put in place? And so we're, we're now in about 1777, and there is a passage in your book which I just thought was so illustrative of the tensions at the time and what Washington wanted out of intelligence. And I was wondering if you would be willing to read that passage for us. It is on page 56 of your book uh, as you begin to describe the 
actual creation of uh, the Culper ring, and we'll, we'll explain what the word Culper means uh, shortly, but uh, there's a passage where, you know, here we are putting ourselves in the mind of George Washington, trying to understand what he knew, what he didn't know, what he needed, what he knew he needed, etc. Uh, and, and you have this account uh, where you start, uh, it's the paragraph that begins after severing, and sort of those those two larger paragraphs right there, we finally get a sense of what Washington was desperate to know. Would you just read that for us? After severing his connection with Sackett, and that's um, a New York City businessman named Nathaniel Sackett, who becomes Washington hires as his spymaster after uh, the attempt with um, Knowlton. Knowlton ultimately, and most of that regiment was wiped out in the battles north of Manhattan, north, in northern Manhattan. So he hires Nathaniel Sackett, to, who is a businessman doing from upstate uh, in Westchester who does business in the city. And we're not sure why Washington picks him to be the spymaster, but he does. It doesn't work out well. So he said uh, Washington fires him after a month because he's not getting any useful information. So uh, the excerpt is, after severing his connection with Sackett, Washington was forced to rely primarily on reconnaissance rather than espionage. But then the general got an unexpected gift in the form of an unsolicited letter written on August 7th, 1778, a day that could be considered the start of the Culper spy ring. The letter was written by Lieutenant Caleb Brewster in Norwalk, Connecticut, and sent directly to Washington, uh, bypassing uh, Benjamin Talmadge, who's the spymaster. Brewster offered to gather intelligence on Long Island. While the letter has been lost, Washington's reply to the imposing and fearless mariner dated the next day fills in the blanks. The general instructed Brewster to, quote, not spare any reasonable expense to come at early and true information, always recollecting and bearing in mind that vague and uncertain accounts of things are more disturbing and dangerous than receiving none at all. He emphasized that he was particularly interested in sightings of enemy transport vessels, open quote, whether they are preparing for the reception of troops and know what number of men are upon Long Island, whether they are moving or stationary, what has become of their draft horses, whether they appear to be collecting them for a move, how they are supplied with provisions, what arrivals, whether the men or provisions, and whether any troops have been embarked. So as you can see, Washington was very interested in nuts and bolts because he knew that's how you win a war. Absolutely. Detail. I mean, he is he is paying attention to uh, draft horses. What has become of their draft horses? I mean, little things like that, which signal so much about an army of the day. That was incredibly revealing. Thank you for for reading that. Now, Bill, as we explore this moment, this sort of creation of the ring, um, the spy ring, certain names, you've mentioned a few of them already, uh, certain names begin to appear with more and more prominence. And one of the joys or the beauties of a story like this is that uh, we now have these names, uh, Talmadge and... Um, uh, Woodhull and Caleb Brewster and and so forth, but we were never supposed to have, right? I mean, the whole point of espionage is that their names would never ever be found out; uh, that the, they would stay within the shadows this whole time. And I want to ask you: we're going to talk about sort of each of them in turn, just so we can get a sense of what the operation looked like as it as it truly flowered. But there was one guy in particular that really caught my attention, and that was John Clark. And you write that very little is known about John Clark. And it, it struck me that of all of the spies, maybe he was the most successful because we know the least about him now. Can you just tell us anything at all about this spy who does seem to have vanished from history? Seemed to have vanished from history, excuse me. Yeah, uh, Clark is a major in the Continental Army. He's a lawyer from Philadelphia. Uh, he comes to Washington's attention and the other generals, uh, and he does everything right where Nathan Hale did everything wrong. This happens while Sackett is in charge. It's the one thing sort of Sackett did right. Uh, but right from the beginning, you see this uh, dichotomy in the thinking of the American commanders uh, between the idea of doing, I, I call it the Nathan Hale model and the, and the John Clark model. So with Nathan Hale, um, they, it's basically you, you pick somebody, you send them behind enemy lines for, for a few days, hope they don't get caught and, and executed, see what they can get, and, they, and you bring them back. 
Uh, Clark is the opposite. He's, uh, his model is you take somebody and, and embed them. Uh, either you find somebody behind enemy lines or you send them there, but there's no immediate uh, plan to bring them back. So you want them sort of to dig in and bury themselves in the culture and landscape of, your, of Long Island in this case and send information back when you can, uh, but don't expose yourself, don't get caught, don't get executed. Right, we would call so that Clark, deep, uh, deep cover in today's terminology. Yeah. Yeah. So Clark does this exceptionally well. He goes, moves over to Long Island, lives somewhere, I guess, in the Huntington area in the middle of the island and sends back reports across the sound via uh, Caleb Brewster and his whale boats and is never uh, suspected by the British and certainly never caught. Uh, and he only leaves after nine months because Washington has his interest has shifted down to Philadelphia, and he knows Clark is a native and he wants Clark to do intelligence gathering in Philadelphia. So they bring uh, Clark back out unscathed, uh, and then he's back in the dark again, uh, lacking any intelligence for several months, and then fortuitously gets this unsolicited letter from Caleb Brewster, who to me is probably the most interesting person in the whole operation because. Uh, he couldn't care less. He he actually sort of wants the British to know who he is, and they do and they do figure out who he is. He sort of taunts them and says, you know, come find me and capture me if you can. Uh, he's engaged in you know whaleboat battles on the Sound. He goes to Long Island, which is fully enemy territory, constantly. Doesn't even make much of an attempt to hide who he is or what he's doing. Later becomes a captain in the in the Revenue Service after the war. Uh, fascinating guy, but he gets this letter from from Brewster. And, and as you see, he says, you know, great, I need the information. Get what you can as quickly as you can. Spare no expense. A week later, Brewster sends an amazingly detailed letter about British uh, dispositions back to Washington with the most important thing is that the British are planning to attack the American strong point in Newport, Rhode Island, which is news to all the American commanders. Washington takes that information, sends reinforcements, alerts the commander who takes uh, other precautions. And the British sees what's going on, realize that they've been their plan has been exposed, and they call off the attack. Uh, so this is w the one of the better examples, but the first example of the co-perspiring, you know, paying off. Uh, and there's lots of other examples, you know, throughout the war, uh, which is why historians agree that the co-perspiring was the best organized, most valuable intelligence network anywhere in the in the colonies during the war. These are some remarkable figures. So there's there's John Clark, as we said. You've you've outlined um, a little bit of Caleb Brewster's uh, work, and I just love the notion of his taking these whaleboat rides, you know, at night and just sort of constantly eluding enemy patrols, and just you know the 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 purposefulness and that that sense of sort of throwing danger to the wind and saying, I'm, I'm going for it. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, really gripping reading. You have Benjamin Talmadge. Now, tell us about Talmadge. He was an aide-de-camp and eventually becomes a spymaster at an incredibly young age. Uh, Talmadge is a, is a great figure. A friend of mine has actually done a full biography of Talmadge, which, uh, Richard Welch, uh, which is a good read. But um, he's the son of a, a local Presbyterian minister out in Setauket. And Setauket is the... the uh, focal point for the spy ring because there's so many people out there that know each other and trust each other. Uh, as far out uh, out of the way from New York as it is, it's the only place that's really secure enough to run this operation. Talmadge is a Yale classmate of, of Nathan Hale. He's uh, a young cavalry officer in a Connecticut regiment early in the war. Uh, his valor around in battles around Philadelphia bring him to the attention of Washington, and Washington's always looking for talented young officers to put on his staff, uh, as he did with Alexander Hamilton and uh, Aaron Burr. So uh, Talmadge ends up as an aide to Washington. Not, I don't think he's involved with uh, the original intelligence brigade or uh, unit, but when uh, he really gets involved, when Washington hires Sackett, Sackett's a civilian, Washington says, I need somebody in headquarters to be the liaison between the civilian and headquarters, and picks Talmadge, one of his promising young aides. Uh, and as bad as a lot of the early spy masters are, uh, luckily Talmadge, uh, again, self, as, as is Washington, a self-trained uh, person in the, in the art of spycraft, Talmadge is brilliant. Talmadge is very well organized and very innovative. Uh, so when he works for Sackett, uh, it's really Talmadge that's making the smart decisions and making things work. Uh, there's another uh, a general that's, uh, after Sackett's fired, Washington picks another uh, another general who, who flames out very quickly, General Charles Scott. But Scott is, is a proponent of what I call the Nathan Hale model. And based on the experience of, of Clark, 
uh, Talmadge feels very strongly that you don't send somebody in uh, floundering around and likely to be caught. You send somebody like Clark who just blends into the background and you get much better information. So uh, Clark uh, doesn't have much interest in the job. He's also the head of a Virginia Infantry Brigade fighting regularly north of the city. He doesn't have the interest or really the time to be a good spymaster. Luckily, Talmadge does uh, after Clark is uh, Washington picks up on this tension between the two different models, realizes Clark is not really into this, uh, and Clark gets the hint and resigns from the Army, goes back to his farm in Virginia, and then at the uh, young age of 24, uh, he appoints, uh, Washington appoints Talmadge as his director of military intelligence, promotes him to major, and now it's Talmadge's uh, game, and, and things really take off at that point. You know, Talmadge is interesting because there's the old adage that loose lips sink ships, and it's just as true on land as it is at sea, right? Uh, Talmadge I find compelling because he, he seemed to understand that even among allied forces, too many people knowing too much could be deadly. And so he serves as the insulation, the barrier of information between Washington and the actual uh, agents that he was handling to the point where he actually prevents Washington from knowing some of these agents' real names, right? He says, we're going to keep this information sequestered. It's going to be clandestine. And uh, with very rare exception, all information had to go through him before it reached uh, Washington and the top brass, right? And so that leads us, of course, directly to the Woodhull family, which are some of the sort of stars of the show here. Um, help us to understand what happened, what traumatic moment happened that persuaded Abraham Woodhull to actually join the ring, because that one kind of caught me by surprise. Okay, so Abraham Woodhull is a fairly successful, you know, middle middle class farmer out in Setauket, and he grew he grew, grew up with all of these other players. Um, you know, they go way back. Uh, Caleb Brewster, uh, Benjamin Talmadge, Abraham Woodhull know each other from you know forever and trust each other, and that's why the spy ring ultimately works. So what happens is when Talmadge is in charge, he 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 wants to have uh, a spy on Long Island who stays on Long Island. And he approaches his friend Abraham Woodhull. And Woodhull uh, goes into the city occasionally to sell produce from his farm or buy provisions for the farm. And Woodhull agrees initially just verbally and then later in writing to make reports about what he sees and learns in going to the city. Woodhull uh, knows what happened to Nathan Hale, and uh, he's very conscious of his security. So in a lot of the early letters you see um, urging Washington, uh, Talmadge and Washington saying, please burn this letter as soon as you read it. Uh, I'm afraid of being uh, you know, uh, exposed and, and, and hanged by the British. Um, and You don't uh, want to get made, sort of, as we would say. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning, Talmadge and Washington pretty much do that. Uh, but then when they get into coded letters, they tend to start saving either the coded letters or the transcriptions. Eventually, uh, I think the, the number is 193 letters have surfaced, uh, either originals or copies or transcriptions, uh, and that's how we know everything about the spy ring. I mean, if they had done what, what Woodhull had asked, and then later uh, when Robert Townsend becomes the chief spy in the city, uh, he's making the same points uh, because he's in the city and he's in great danger. Um, but Talmadge and Washington don't don't destroy everything, and that's how we we look out and we know it. But uh, you know, Woodhull. Um, is going back and forth. Woodhull is very nervous, which in part is probably why he has such bad luck going into in, into and in, uh, in, in back from the city. He's constantly stopped by British patrols or loyalist militia patrols, searched, beaten, robbed. Uh, but luckily, he always puts the letters. He opens up some stitching on his saddle and hides whatever documents he has in that little cavity. And and the, uh, the people that stop him and rob him and beat him up never figure that out. But eventually, he, after you know about a year of this, uh, he's so nervous that he writes Talmadge and, and Washington and saying, I can't keep doing this. I'm going to be uh, exposed and, and captured. And he threatens to basically leave Long Island to live in Connecticut with the other uh, refugees. So uh, Washington and Talmadge realize they have to uh, accommodate him, otherwise they'll have nothing. So they all start looking for somebody who can uh, either be in the city or go in the city and stay there. 
uh, and they they come up with various possibilities that don't work uh, for different reasons. And finally, it's Woodhull comes up with Robert Townsend because when Woodhull goes to the city, he stays at his brother-in-law's boarding house. And uh, when Robert Townsend, who's the son of a very prosperous Oyster Bay merchant, goes into the city to do business for his father, he stays at the same boarding house and they get to know each other. Finally, uh, Woodhull broaches the subject with Townsend. He says, yes, I will be your spy in the city, provided nobody knows who I am other than you and Talmadge and the couriers going back and forth. And as you alluded to, initially Washington wants to meet Woodhull. He tells Talmadge to bring him to headquarters so they – Washington get a measure of the man and they can talk about strategy. Talmadge and Woodhull violently oppose the idea, saying, we know there are people in headquarters who are spies for the British, including members of your own internal uh, – I forgot the right right term. It's not quite a cabinet, but yes, it's the – So they said if if Woodhull goes to headquarters, the whole spy ring could be unmasked. Uh, Washington realizes right away that they're right, writes back and saying, yes, stay away, and actually states to Talmadge and Woodhull, I don't want to know the names of anybody other than Talmadge, and they they maintain that secrecy through the rest of the war. Those individuals established, I mean, here we have the creation of the ring, and um, I have two questions for you before we uh, take a break for for this week. Uh, First question is Culper. Where does the name Culper come from? The, the name comes from uh, – early on, they realize that their letters could be captured by British patrols, and they are, both on Long Island and in Connecticut. So the first level of spycraft that they uh, get involved in is giving code names to um, Caleb uh, – Caleb Brewster refuses to have one, which is what, what – I mean, Caleb Brewster is just fascinating <laughs> to me. Uh, yeah. He couldn't – like I said, he couldn't care less. He wants the British to know who he is and what he's doing. Talmadge and Woodhull decide to, to take uh, code names – to protect themselves, and Townsend does the same thing when he joins. So uh, Talmadge decides he'll be John Bolton. We don't know why he picked that name. Woodhull decides to be uh, Samuel Culper Sr. Uh, we think this might be an homage to Washington, who was a, uh, a surveyor when he was 19 in Pulpepper County, Virginia, but we don't know. Nobody, None of the letters explain why they picked the code names and why the uh, – and, and, and the Culper Ring never was called the Culper Ring – during the war. This name comes up much later. Uh, and we know that was taken from uh, Samuel Culper Sr. And then uh, when Townsend joins, he takes the code name of Culper Jr. So it becomes obviously the Culper Spiring because of those two code names. But we don't know why Woodhull and Talmadge came up with uh, the Culper name in the first place. But the best guess is because of Washington's surveying work in Virginia. So the last question that I have for you, Bill, and this is a really tricky question to ask. Uh, I'm going to try to phrase it in a way that that makes sense, but even formulating it was hard for me. Even as throughout the whole of your book, it it kept sort of looming over the shadow of every page. Um, One of the challenges of writing a, a work like this is working not just through distance, right? Hundreds of years uh, removed, but working in a field in which information is necessarily always partial, okay? It is especially partial. It is especially fragmentary. It is especially dispersed when you're dealing with intelligence, okay? Military intelligence. How do you square as a writer here, how do you square the hindsight of what we know now about the course of the war and about uh, the nature of these movements and uh, the impacts that these decisions had with trying to figure out what Washington and his agents knew only uh fragmentarily new only in pieces right we know so much more now and and yet your job as a writer is to enter into the minds of you know these brave men and these soldiers who were only working with limited or fragmentary information at the time does that make sense yeah although it's interesting how much i mean when you read the culper letters it, it's stunning how much detail there is and 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 the, Washington was getting information from other other sources. Uh, 
there was a tailor in the city who was sending him reports through his his uh, slave. So a lot of what the uh, what the culprit would send him was was verified by other sources, and often got to to Washington before the culprit letter because they're going through the circuitous route uh, from New York. Uh, 55 miles east on Long Island to Setauka and across the Sound, and then 55 miles or more back to, to wherever Washington was uh, in north of the city or even in New Jersey. So Washington complains throughout the war that the information is extremely de detailed and accurate, but it takes forever to get to him to the point where sometimes it's stale and no longer usable when he gets it. But when you read the letters, it's um, uh, especially with Townsend's letters, uh, we don't know where he's getting his information, but this, uh, historians agree that he must have had contacts uh, uh, or access to British headquarters because these letters, it's this regiment landed with X amount of men on this dock. Uh, this ship has this this whole list of provisions. These, this uh, regiment is marching to this location. Uh, it was like he was a fly on the wall in the British headquarters. I mean, there's no other explanation how we could have found all this. The, you know, the tailor I mentioned was making uniforms for British officers who would tend to brag about uh, what they were doing. And, and in two cases, he literally saved Washington from capture or, or assassination because the officers bragged about they w they wanted a new uniform because they were going out to capture George Washington based on uh, intelligence they had gathered. But, uh, you know, there were times when Brewster and, uh, would, and uh, Woodhull would get information to Talmadge about logical targets to attack on Long Island, and Washington approved uh, th at least three or four of them that turned out to be very successful. And they had a lot of very detailed information of you know where the British were, how many they were, what they were up to, um, and uh, you know when you, when you consider this is the 1780s, late 1770s, you know it's pretty amazing, um, and you can see why Washington was concerned when he didn't have it. And it was an, a nine-month period uh, after Benedict Arnold switches sides uh, and becomes a British uh, general, and the first thing he does is go into New York looking for the spies he knows they were there. Uh, and one of the people he captures is Hercules Mulligan, the tailor. Luckily, he talks his way out of uh, getting hanged and, and is released. Uh, Ta uh, Townsend is so unnerved by this, he leaves the city for nine months, goes back to Oyster Bay, and the culpa ring pretty much ceases to function. And Washington is furious about it and basically sort of writes them off uh, for, uh, for that nine months and long after. I mean, you can see when he gets these reports, if they, he gets them in time where he can actually – Basis strategy and, and successful actions on, on what he's getting. You know, it sounds to me like we we have a view of the whole chessboard, and maybe it's too much to say that um, Washington couldn't see the whole chessboard. Maybe he saw just enough of the chessboard to try to plan his next move accordingly, and that was enough. Right, definitely. Well, let's leave it there for now. We'll come back next week, and we will talk about the absolute best part of it all, which is tradecraft, uh, among many other things. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest has been Bill Blyer, author of George Washington's Long Island Spy Ring, a history and tour guide published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop crime capsule. Join us next week for the second part of our conversation and the conclusion to this epic tale. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for. First, let me say again how grateful we were to everyone who took the time to write in and share their thoughts on our recent Paranormal series. Hearing from listeners across the country was such a joy, so thank you again for your kind words and for all the support you've shown us as we've reached this milestone of 50 full episodes of Crime Capsule. The winner of our giveaway is... The winner is... Eric writing out of Moberly, Missouri. Eric writes, quote, I research and investigate weird history in Missouri, so these episodes were fantastic. Lisa Livingston Martin has great insight on Southern Missouri legends and always shares her knowledge with others, unquote. Eric, congratulations. We could not agree more about Lisa's great work. And we'll be sending you a copy of Haunted Joplin soon 
with thanks from all of us at History Press and Evergreen Podcasts. And who knows, if you're researching weird history in that area too, maybe one day we'll have you on the show after you've published your own paranormal accounts. Regardless, thanks again. And for everyone out there in TV land, we had a lot of fun doing this, and we hope to do another giveaway soon. That's all for this week. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 